0: I've grown convinced that at the center of every human life, and indeed in the life of almost every single community of human beings, uh, there rages a battle of sorts. Uh, it's a, a battle between the, the voice uh, that comes from above that says, I am God, and the, the voice from inside of ourselves that says, no thanks, I'd rather play that role for myself. Uh, It's the struggle between the um, God-directed life and the self-directed life. It's the struggle between the the particular priorities that that God calls for and the priorities that we tend to settle for. I think of it as the struggle between the way of humility on the one side and the way of pride on the other side. It's the struggle that that forms the the start of the whole biblical narrative. In Genesis chapter 3, when we see the first human beings surrounded by incredible uh, privilege and plenty, nonetheless fixating on the one thing they can't have, the one tree that's been fenced off, and it's the struggle they give into when they obey the voice of the adversary who says, you should take that too, because then you will be as God. How is the battle between humility and pride going for you? and how do you tell? How do you actually recognize w- whether pride or humility are winning that particular struggle? Um, I want to suggest to you that, that nowhere is um, the, uh, the nature of that battle more clearly uh, described than in the story that we're going to have a chance Uh, to look at today, and it's an important story because the outcome, the result of this particular contest within the human spirit, determines in some real way the ultimate um, outcome of the character of individuals and of societies themselves, and and if you're just joining us, the the context for the conversation that we've been having uh, is the great nation of Babylon. The year is 539 B.C., and we're in the capital city of one of the most impressive and influential and sophisticated empires ever to grow up on the face of planet Earth. Uh, in chapter 5, um, we open up with a coalition of the Persian and the Median armies who are amassing now outside of the walls of the capital city. And they're zealously looking for a way into that city. The uh, strange, ominous threat that's outside the walls of the city uh, poses a very fascinating and ironic counterpoint to what we see going on inside of the walls of the city because if you were with us last week, you know that it is at this moment when the enemy is amassing outside that King Belshazzar of Babylon decides to throw a party. A massive feast for some 1,000 of his nobles. And the very fact that he's choosing to do this, when probably a lot of the people, the common people in Babylon, are noticing the noise outside the walls and are feeling a little bit uneasy about that, the very fact that Belshazzar decides to party it up in this moment tells us a lot about his character and about the culture that he led. Babylon was a nation that had faced many, many challenges over the course of its history. It had uh, faced up to a lot of conflicts and it apparently won every single one of them. The, gr- the wealth and the wisdom of Babylon had grown bigger and bigger over time and yet in the process of, all of winning all of those battles, the Babylonian people and especially the leaders of Babylon had been sadly losing the most important contest of all. In the fight between humility and pride Humility was taking a beating in Babylon. So how do you know that that's happening? I go back to your story and to my story again. How do we know when someone is losing the battle, when pride is actually winning out? Well, I want to suggest to you that there are at least three pretty clear signs that come out of this story that we could apply to our times and our lives too. The first of these signs is that a prideful person, a person in whom pride is winning the day, tends to use sacred things for selfish purposes. They tend to use things that have been made for God's purposes and use them for my own selfish purposes. The humble heart has this way of tending to see life as a gift, not something they own, not something they command, but a grace. And all of life, our money, our power, our sexuality, our speech, our our, uh, resources of many, many different kinds, these things are all, in a sense, vessels that are meant to be used uh, for God. They come from God, and we want his priorities and his purposes to guide the use of these things. And somebody in whom pride is winning the battle will forget that. They will tend to kind of, after a while, begin to think, you know, these things actually are mine. Um, I I own these things. I did these things. I created these things. And after those vessels of, uh, of capacity have been in your own personal storehouse for a while, then it is only natural to start thinking that I own these things, and they're mainly for my amusement, for my pleasure. And in fact, you kind of get somewhat irritated if somebody comes along and suggests to you that there's actually an external standard for the use of those things, that there actually is a, a, a source behind all of these things, that you are called to live responsive to that larger source's hopes and desires for life. That's probably why nobody in the room, in the great banquet room at Belshazzar's feast, raised any kind of objection uh, when Belshazzar decided that the sacred vessels uh, that had been stolen from the temple in Jerusalem in far-off Israel now be hauled out of storage and be passed around and used as toasting goblets uh, for the purpose of praising the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, quote-unquote. That's what the vessels were brought out for. If you remember last week's story, they were just to be used in a toast to all of the things, to the gods that Babylon had made, which is exactly the opposite of what those vessels from Jerusalem had been made for. They had been made to be used for the praise of the god no human hands have made and who has made all things. It's then at this particular moment as they're parting it up that um, the scriptures tell us a mysterious hand, a disembodied hand appears and it begins to write on the wall, the plaster wall over near the lampstand where everybody could see the writing in the light of the lampstand and this is how the great Artist Rembrandt pictures the particular scene. This is how he famously imagines it. And that's where I left you last week. We were just hanging, wondering what the message was that first made King Belshazzar's uh, legs go weak and his knees to start to knock together. What was it that actually so upset Belshazzar about those words on the wall? Well, I'm glad you clicked on this next episode because I'm going to answer that question for you now. The hand wrote four words. And and the words were written in the Aramaic language. Now, the Aramaic language was the common language of the ancient Middle East. Uh, Lots of different subcultures and civilizations spoke their own particular tongue, but there was a shared language that pretty much everybody knew. So that if you really wanted to make uh, an idea clear, you wanted to make sure that everybody within earshot got it, well, then you'd present it in Aramaic. The only problem or tricky part about Aramaic is that when it's written down, it only uses consonants. It only uses consonants, and you have to guess at the vowels based on the context. In other words, Aramaic works a little bit like our vanity license plates. You know what I mean? So if you see this one on the back of my car, you know, you know that's Dan Meyer driving that car you automatically know how to translate it. You know which consonants or which uh, vowels to supply for those consonants. You know that that word means pester, because it's pester because that's what I do on weekends. (laughs) I pester you, yeah. You see how it's possible to misunderstand, actually, if you don't for sure know which of the vowels? are meant there, are implied there. And this, I think, is part of the really fascinating uh, part of the story here because ultimately those consonants um, would have been naturally interpreted by the Babylonians considering the context as as meaning the words Mina Mina Tequil Ufarsin. Mina Mina Tequil Ufarsin which literally means, in rough translation, 100 bucks, 100 bucks, 20 bucks a dollar. 100 bucks, 100 bucks, 20 bucks a dollar. Now, I love this little detail because you just have to appreciate God's sense of humor. (laughs) Because if you're trying to talk to somebody whose primary value system is rooted in money, what better way than to do it in a fashion that in effect says, I'm gonna let money talk. Belshazzar believed a lot in the power of money. Uh, he, his whole concept of power and of significance was wrapped up in material wealth. And the very thing, next thing that he does in this story tells us just how true that is about him. Not, not only is he throwing this massive, highly expensive party for a 1,000 of his nobles, um, but when he is shaken up by this writing that occurs on the wall, uh, he essentially issues an edict that says, if anybody can interpret this stuff for me and tell me what this actually means, I will give them an Armani suit, a Rolex watch, and I'll make them executive VP in my administration. Now he doesn't do, say exactly that. You can go back in chapter 5 and read the, the specific Um, promises he makes, but that's the essence of it. I will make you really wealthy and really powerful if you can answer for me the question, the mystery of what that means. Um, So, more importantly, I I don't know if you can see here what this response tells you about how Belshazzar is doing in the battle between humility and pride within himself. Uh, I have some sense, and you probably do too, of how somebody who is humble truly uh, humble, uh, would tend to respond to a very disturbing event like this experience that he's having. I talk to people all the time. Uh, th- th- maybe their, their spouse tells them that the, that the marriage is over. Or maybe they uh, are in a season where, you know, something's going on with one of the kids that, that is just like, wow, I, I, we've tried everything uh, I mean, and still this is going on. Or, or they get the, the, the very bad news from the doctor or the, the quarterly report for the second or third quarter in a row is very, very frightening or they've fallen off the wagon or they're into some kind of dangerous uh, relationship or, or they're behind in their mortgage. And The humble people that I know and that you know in those moments have this tendency to turn to God or to turn to other people and with a tone of meekness say, I'm in trouble. I'm out of my depth. Uh, Wow, I'm not sure what to do. Can you help me? Would you help me? And when confronted with crisis, humility tends to confess need. In the face of really high adversity or crisis, humility confesses need, even though it means getting really honest and really vulnerable, and humility has this tendency to handle these kinds of problems by reaching up or reaching out. Pride, on the other hand, doesn't do this. Pride has a a whole nother way of handling these kinds of things. And that's the second sign, I think, that somebody is, is, is losing the battle. Not only are they gonna be using sacred vessels inappropriately for their own purposes, but, but the second big sign is, is that a person who is prideful will tend to confront crisis by trying to control their way out of it. Now, don't get me wrong on this. When we face big challenges and crises in our life, we're meant to use our brains. We're meant to use our resources. We're meant to be responsible in trying to address those things. I, I think that's for sure. There's lots of parts of the Bible that make that clear. But that's a little different than the word control. It, it, being responsible is different from being controlling. And, and ultimately, I think that, that crises for a prideful person aren't opportunities to examine myself. They aren't opportunities to awaken me to my dependency upon the other important relationships of my life. They aren't opportunities to to turn to God. These are, crises are opportunities for me to manage my resources more purposely. Uh, more deliberately, more skillfully. If a prideful person has to get help from somebody else, she or he will tend not to beseech somebody for it. They will pay for it. They will try to buy it. Uh, I know I do this myself sometimes. I'll have uh, problems with, with plumbing or electricity or something. I have a neighbor Next door, who's a genius at those things? I could go next door and say, John, I'm clueless. I'm not sure what to do. I I think I've messed this up, could could you help me? But my tendency is to pick up the phone instead and and to call somebody I can pay to do these things, even though I think actually John would be delighted to help. He's a great neighbor. Pride doesn't like that, doesn't like to be out of control. Um, Pride wants to hold on, It, it wants to, to to be a self-made, self-sufficient being. And maybe that's the reason why we see this one additional sign often that gives a prideful soul away. A prideful person will rarely admit when he or she's wrong. Uh, Pride does not like to admit wrong. And that, I think, is where we really learn something, and we see it uh, blazingly so in the life of King Belshazzar of Babylon. The Bible says that after all of his hired wise men were brought in uh, to to try and interpret what was up there on the wall, and they couldn't interpret it, uh, they saw that it said uh, 100 bucks, 100 bucks, 20 bucks, a dollar, um, but that wasn't a very helpful message for the king who sensed that it had a deeper import than that. At this moment, the queen mother says, hey, hey, Belshazzar, We have on staff here in in the dream interpretation and vision interpretation department another resource that works for you that you can summon in. And it's at that point that Belshazzar issues the order that Daniel be brought to the court. So in comes 80-year-old Daniel, right? Right? He's 80 now, or in his 80s. He's, he's been serving in Babylon a long time. And the king demands to know what that means on the wall. Um, and, and Daniel proceeds then to remind uh, King Belshazzar, of the lessons that his father, some believe it was his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, learned the very hard way. God, if you remember the lessons that we've looked at already together in the series, God had taught Nebuchadnezzar on a number of occasions the, the very hard lesson that it is God who makes people, kings, and nations, and it is not people who make God or gods. And if you remember the last time we talked about this, Nebuchadnezzar actually had been driven to a nervous breakdown. The tree of his life had come crashing down because he was so late in learning this very important lesson and God humbled him forcibly. So Daniel then goes on to tell the king what the words on the wall actually mean, what the takeaway message really is there. You see, everybody has the consonants right. It's the vowels they've got wrong, kind of like pester and pastor. The correct translation involves inserting the vowels from the passive participle of the word. Does anybody know what that would be? You don't remember your Aramaic lessons? So I'll I'll supply that for you because if you put in the correct vowels, the message now says, mene, mene, tekel, uh, parson, or perez, as some put it, which means literally numbered, measured, Divided. Numbered, numbered, measured, divided. Literally, Daniel goes on to say to Belshazzar, your days of living, Belshazzar, are numbered. Your character has been measured and found hopelessly lightweight. And the impenetrable walls of your empire have been divided as literally they would be that very night when a coalition of the Medes and the Persians broke in and took everything. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how that happens but there are other historical sources that give us a detail on this. Let me just pause before I tell you the answer to that and say that the German uh, theologian and pastor, Helmut Thielecki, once observed that it is always much easier to become religious after the second heart attack. (laughs) You'd think the first one would do it. I've had one of those. Um, But sometimes we're really slow. in in, in taking the warning, in, in learning the lesson. People somehow have this remarkable way of not changing, even after there have been crises that are these incredible invitations to change. Belshazzar had not learned from what happened to his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. And now, even after Daniel's prediction of what was about to happen to him and to the kingdom of Babylon, Belshazzar still doesn't respond in humility. He still doesn't repent. He he actually just turns around and tries to pay Daniel off for his services. That's his, I'm gonna reassert control in this circumstance. Let me say it again, there are three clear signs that in the battle between humility and pride, pride is winning. The prideful person will tend to use sacred things for selfish purposes. The prideful person will try to control their way out of crises. And the prideful persons, even when confronted by the truth, will rarely admit that he or she has been dead wrong. And in this story, dead is the operative word. It it sadly is. Um, The vast weight of scripture in this tale suggests there are two clear consequences to losing the battle between humility and pride. There are two big consequences. The first consequence of pride is the loss of life. It's the loss of life. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. Uh, The ultimate consequence, because pride is the most deadly of the sins, it's the first of the sins, uh, the ultimate consequence is the loss of a spiritual life, of a life with God, of a life abundant and eternal. Um, And the Bible goes on to say that that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. Let me tell you how that happened. Belshazzar went to bed that night, probably a little shaken up from this whole encounter that he'd had. Uh, Gets into bed, he pulls the covers over his head, I'm imagining. Um, He may be feeling a little bit anxious, but he's still very much in control. After all, I said, Last week, he had these famous impregnable double walls to shield him. He had all of the food inside of the walls of the city that he needed to survive any kind of siege. He even had the water, uh, uh, endless supply of water from the Euphrates River that flowed right underneath the walls and the gates to supply the city. But while Belshazzar snored, the Persians and the Medians did something that no Babylonian had ever anticipated as a possibility. They dug a huge channel in the night and rerouted the Euphrates River. And then they walked on the dry riverbed underneath the walls of the city, came up and slaughtered Belshazzar in his sleep. It was over like that in the dead of night. I am a person who is really grateful that God does not often exact a penalty like that in the face of our pride, at least not the first few times, at least not after a few years. I am one of these people that is very, very grateful that God is patient and kind, as the scriptures say, that he is long-suffering, that his love is, is steadfast, that he gives chance after chance after chance to us to, to turn to him, to, to use what we have in the way that he intends uh, when he has given us what we have. But there is going to come a day, the Bible says, there's gonna come a day when, for all of us, we know for sure that our days are numbered. Uh, when, we, when we find for sure that our character has been measured and, and when we are divided from all of our earthly securities. There's gonna come a day when the, when the riverbed goes dry in a sense, right? It may happen very, very suddenly, or it may just happen a slow dropping of the water level, so slowly that we don't even see that it's happening. There's gonna come a day When when the river of life as we know it is no more, and the New Testament teaches that the ones who will be alive, the ones who will stand the test, who will will go on on that particular night will be those who have humbly surrendered their lives to God here. Who have humbly surrendered their lives to God here. Uh, Jesus said whoever would save their life must deny self, humble themselves, deny self, and follow after me. For what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? What can a person give, says Jesus, to get back their soul? So I want to pray today that you have humbly surrendered yourself to the lordship of the king. I wanna invite you, if you've never done this in a thoughtful way before, if you've never purposely gotten up and off of the throne of control, and said, Jesus, you belong here. You belong at the center of my life, and I wanna serve you with who I am and with what I have. I want you to, to not just be my savior, I want you to be My Lord, if you've never, ever asked Jesus to do that, said that humbly uh, to him, I need you, Lord, to take that place in my life, let today be the day you do, okay? Do that. You won't be sorry that you've taken that step of faith. Uh, There is one last reason to make humility your aim. And the last verse verse of Daniel 5 says, that very night, Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. It doesn't actually say that. If you go back to the original language, a more literal rendering of it says, and that very night, Darius the Mede received the kingdom. And the import there is that even Darius was a recipient of grace, whether he recognized it or not, and that God gave the kingdom over to Darius. So I said that the first consequence of pride is the loss of life. The second consequence of pride is the loss of the opportunity to be an ultimate influencer with your life. With your life. Now hear me clearly on this. God wants us to have the joy of being stewards of the resources of this world. Uh, He delights in sharing that opportunity with us and making us co-creators or stewards of this life with him. He gives us this stuff, this capacity, this power that we have. He's called us into the life of his church, the community of faith, in order to strengthen us and clarify how we're meant to do this. But he wants us to go out there and and be great users of all of the capacity that we have to establish his kingdom's character and the blessing and the flourishing that other people need wherever we go and all the spheres we inhabit. But that particular way of living and using our stuff cannot ever happen if we're still ruled by pride. It just can't happen. And if we can't humble ourselves, then here's the reality check. This is the story. This is what it's telling us. God will find someone else. Belshazzar thought he was indispensable. God said, I'll use Darius. Don't let that happen. Don't let God move on past you. I, I don't want him to go on and move on past me. I, I want you and I want myself to be part of his good work part of his glorious work in this world. And so I just want to throw out a couple ideas for us as we prepare to go on our way about how we can help humility win the battle for our soul. I want to just throw out a few strategies because all of us are battling with this, okay? Trust me, I I definitely, I battle in this area as I imagine you do. And, And so if you're on the remedial plan in this area as I am, then let me just suggest that one of the things that helps is to first move past what you may have historically thought of as the limits of humility or the nature of humility. We tend, for example, to think of humility as being um, somebody who tolerates the criticism of others. We think, oh, that's a humble person. Actually, humility in the fullest sense of the term is the attitude that actually invites the critique of others that is so committed to getting better that, they, that, that you actually encourage other people to tell you what they think and what they see. Actively invite critique from others. Now that's a stretch for a lot of us. I know it is for me because I spent a lot of my time actually actively looking for the affirmation of others. How'd I do? What'd you think of that? Was it a good message? Did it work for you? How good was it? And when people answer that, I'm sort of usually a little disappointed they haven't said quite enough. You know, they say these really nice things, and I say, oh, that's very nice. Tell me more. Tell me more. So, this is, this is difficult uh, to do, uh, but, The psalmist is such a wonderful model for us in this respect. David, as you know, King David, was the psalmist, or uh, is responsible for most of the Psalms, and and he struggled with pride all of his life. He did some terrible things uh, in the name of pride. He was a rapist in the name of pride, I mean, and a killer in the name of pride. But towards the end of his life, he was humbled, and he developed a pattern of actively inviting critique. In one of his most famous prayers, Psalm 139, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me. Tell me what it is and lead me in the way everlasting. So ask somebody you trust, find somebody in your life that knows you well enough and say, Speak the truth to me. Are there any sacred vessels I'm misusing? Are there any securities and comforts that you see me overmuch pouring myself in? Am I putting my confidence in the wrong things? Please, I need your feedback to become more than I am. That's idea number one, strategy number one. Secondly, take a page out of the actor Charlton Heston's book. Now, you are all too young to remember Charlton Heston. (laughs) But he was a big name in Hollywood some years back. In fact, he played the figure of Moses. In the Ten Commandments, one of the most uh, famous religious movies of all time. And uh, Heston said at one point that the three most important words in a marriage were not, I really love you, but, I was wrong. I was wrong. Can you see how that's true at, in all kinds of relationships? There is a huge world of difference between saying, I am sorry and saying, I was wrong. When I say I'm sorry to Amy sometimes, or some of the other people in my life, it is is often a dangerously false kind of humility. Because what I really mean is, I am sorry that you feel that way. I am sorry that you felt hurt. I am sorry that you misunderstood me. I am sorry that you're giving me this grief. Which I don't really think I deserve. I mean, that is the subtext. Often, when I use those words, I I am sorry. But it is very hard to say I was wrong and not have my pride crushed underneath that bended knee. Where are you wrong? Where are you wrong? Who do you need to tell that to? Thirdly, make humble service of somebody else your aim this week. Make humbly serving somebody else your aim this week. And don't do it at the 101 level. Don't do it just for people that you like to serve. Jesus once said, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you want to to grow in humility, Serve somebody you don't like. Serve somebody you find kind of obnoxious or difficult. Serve an enemy. How many years did Daniel keep serving his enemies? He was a teenager when he arrived in Babylon. Remember, He'd been, he had been kidnapped from his land. They'd slaughtered his people. He'd been taken in chains. He'd been put in this foreign culture. He'd been forced into all kinds of patterns of behavior that he would never want. And yet he kept serving administration after administration. He kept serving, trying to bring blessing, trying to bring help in the midst of Babylonia. How many ways did Jesus demonstrate this for us? How many times did he keep doing good to those who persecuted him What was his attitude on the cross when they were jeering his agony, and he said, Father, forgive them. If you want to grow in humility, then serve an enemy. Serve somebody you find it hard to like, and just watch how your pride gets defeated. Finally, don't merely bow your head and blush when you're given accolades. When you're given compliments and praise, I know that's our usual vision of humility. Somebody says something great, and we go, oh, shucks. Again, keep it coming. <laughs> oh, shucks, right? But that's not what Daniel does. One of the fascinating things about his modeling in this. Uh, Story is that he's given accolades a lot. I mean, there are many times in the history of Babylon that Daniel does great things and and the power of God is very clear in him and and Nebuchadnezzar and and others just heap all kinds of praises and rewards upon him, but every single time we see him giving the glory to God, pointing back to God. And so this week, when somebody praises something about you, and I hope they will, uh, this week when they do that, Lift your head and smile and say, oh, thank you for saying that. It feels really wonderful to hear things like that. But believe me, the glory is all God's. He gave me this capacity. He put me in that position. He supplied me with the grace that carries me even when I'm not thinking about it. It is such a pleasure to be used as a vessel for his glory. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Would you please pray with me? God, thank you for it all. Thank you that you are not just a resource, you are the source of everything. You are the one in whom we live and move and have our being. You are the one from whose hands has come all of our blessings. You are the one who has endowed us with capacities, especially we who are Americans, we who live here in these communities, with resources and capacities so far above the measure of almost everybody who's ever lived. Oh God, we are the Babylonians of our time. So help us, Lord, to use who we are and what we are in a humble way, recognizing you who are on the throne, you who are the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and may what we do and the way we live when we leave this place reflect to your glory and bring blessing to those you so love that you sent Jesus to be our Savior. And all God's people said, amen.